the Word of God. We return in our study to Philippians, one of the most encouraging books of the Bible. You say, well, Pastor, what about that title, True Believers versus Fake Believers? Well, we're going to be looking at a theme this morning that reoccurs over and over and over again, both in the Old Testament as well in the New Testament. And when themes reoccur over and over again in God's Word, we shouldn't skip over them because we think we've heard them before or because they don't seem to be a message that we necessarily like to hear. God's Word is both encouraging, but it's also very often a critical, a very, very important warning to us. And so this morning we come and we see that. We see both the encouragement of the Word of God and we see the warning of the Word of God. So true believers versus fake believers as we come to Philippians, a new chapter, Philippians chapter 3. And we're just going to look at three verses And um, notice with me some preliminary and background reminders before we jump into it, especially if you're brand new to us. Hopefully by now you've already got your notes printed out and you're able to follow along. But notice number one, this gives you an orientation on what this whole study is about. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul who is in prison in Rome and he's writing to the church at Philippi. Philippi is a city in Greece. And so this is 2,000 years ago after the Lord Jesus has finished his ministry upon the earth, and the gospel is spreading all through the Roman Mediterranean world, and here the Apostle Paul is writing back to a church that he loves. Notice number two. In this text this morning, we're going to see that the Bible is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago when it was complete. The relevancy of the Bible is incredibly powerful. Notice, The spiritual issues are exactly the same, only the manifestation of those issues changes. Here's the idea. There's nothing new under the sun. Our sinful heart and our sinful condition is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, all through the history of humanity. You see, this morning we're going to see It just simply changes in the way it reveals itself. So the problems of 2,000 years ago are still the problems of today. Notice number three. God's message to us through his word is direct, clear, and potent. It's powerful. The picture is this. The Bible doesn't hold anything back. Um, Christianity, cultural Christianity, or various other ideas may tend to want to soften the message. Um, there's some churches that want to soften the message or individuals that, that, that they, they kind of ignore the parts that are very direct and, and rugged. Well, when we're studying the Bible verse by verse as we go through books, we, we don't have the option to just skip over things if we're going to do that faithfully, which is why we study the Bible in this way. But God's message is direct and clear. And you're going to see that in the text. It pulls no punches. It does not hold back. And it is beyond deadly serious. So God's word isn't a joke. It's not fiction. It's real. It's true. And it is eternal. And it's news that you can use. It's news that will save you in this life and in eternity. Why is this so important? Why is God's word this way? Because God's glory and your eternity, my eternity, is at stake. So God's word reveals to us his glory and it shows us how to get to him and be with him 
through his plan. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, you can jot that down to the side. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says that the word of God is living and active, and listen to this, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So it, it has a cut to it. And that's what we're going to see in Philippians 3, verses 1 through 3. So look with me at number 4. The good news of forgiveness and eternal life is at the heart of the New Testament message. This is the glorious truth of the New Testament. You can be forgiven. You can have eternal life. That's the whole message of the Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This records the life of Christ, the seek and save ministry of Christ. The book of Acts records the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman world. What a glorious thing that we get to see how the ministry continued after Jesus ascends to the Father and the church begins to grow. The church takes off in all of this. And then there's these letters that we see recorded for us. This is Corinthians and Romans and uh, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, all of these letters that help us know the deep, theological depth, or the, the, the rich theological depth, and the practical instruction that God gives us. Finally, at the end of the New Testament, we see that Revelation records the triumph of the gospel and God's ultimate plan, the climactic plan of his salvation, the fact that he has come to rescue his people and give them eternal life. What a glorious truth that we can rejoice in that. Well, this message of the gospel comes up over and over again where we see the affirmation of true faith and we see the warning against fake faith. Now, this message is is throughout the Old Testament as well. People who think that they're right with God who are actually dishonoring God. They're living for their own purposes with their own truths. They're, they're not listening to what God has said. And so that's a, that's a problem of the Old Testament. But this morning, we're going to see where that shows up in the New Testament, and we're going to see it from several different angles. So this morning, we come to the affirmation of true faith and the warning against fake faith. Now, again, this is a message that comes up over and over again in the Word of God. To the Old Testament believers um, and the Old Testament people, they were warned, don't be self-deceived about your salvation. This morning, we're going to be looking at multiple places in the New Testament where we see this very important warning because it comes up in this passage and we see it throughout the New Testament message. So notice with me on your outline there in the box in the top of the page, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Finally, brothers, verse 1 says, Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the, things, the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Interesting. It's safe for you. Look at number 2. Look out for the dogs. Watch out or look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. These three little verses both affirm true faith and they warn against fake faith. 
So let's see how this works. Notice on your outline here, fake or false faith is a constantly reoccurring warning of the New Testament. John the Baptist called people to repent and prepare the way for the Messiah. When he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he cried out, look what he cried out, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with what? Repentance. Here's the picture. John the Baptist was there preaching before Jesus would begin his ministry. And there were thousands of people following after John the Baptist. There were people coming and listening to his message saying, turn from your sins, repent, be baptized. The, the one who is coming to save the world is now on his way. He's, he's coming. He's here is the picture. Well, there were some Pharisees and Sadducees that see all this happening, and them, they, in all of their righteousness, they come show up at the waters of baptism. And John the Baptist, he's not seeker-friendly on this, friends. He's not being, he's not being very soft in his message. He's not, he's not putting any veneer on it. He looks at them, and look what he says. You talk about a serrated edge. He cuts with, you brood of vipers, if you're really going to come, then you obey in repentance. And so bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's a, a turning to God. And so he is, he is warning these religious people who think they're okay with God, he is saying to them, you check your heart. Look at the next part here. Jesus, not only John the Baptist, but Jesus also warned about this many times. He warned about this many times. We see it in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 9. Jesus said these words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Look at verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here once again, we see the word of God is cutting straight down into the honesty of our own hearts, the honesty of our own lives, the honest, genuine picture of who we are or who we are not. And Jesus is saying that here where there are religious people that actually are not at all God's people. And so then on page two, notice with me that Jesus continues in this vein. Jesus warns in parables about this very same issue. Matthew chapter 13, verses three through nine, we see the parable of the four soils. Notice there on the top of your sheet, verse three says, and he told them many things in parables saying, and here's the four soils, a sower went out to sow, went out to sow seed. A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. That's the first soil. And the birds came and devoured them. Verse 5, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up and since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Verse 8, but other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. 
Then we see that Jesus explains this in private, and he does so with unmistakable clarity that is meant to be a warning to those who have false faith and do an encouragement to those who have true faith. Look at verse 18. Here then the parable of the sower. Here he's, ex- he's explaining it. When anyone, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what is sown along the path. Look at verse 20. So for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Verse 22, as for what was sown on among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. Our Lord Jesus, over and over again, is showing us this issue of perhaps false belief. If you would, go ahead and turn the page. I want you to see other places in the New Testament where these very, very important warnings occur. The letters of the New Testament are full of warnings not to be deceived about the reality of salvation. We see, notice here on your outline, Paul writes, Jude writes, John writes, James writes. Over and over again, we see that it is possible to be deceived about our salvation. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? In 2 Timothy 3, 5, it says, many will have an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Timothy is told, avoid those people. In Titus, we see the Apostle Paul say, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So, their, they, their mouth says yes, but their life says no. You know, isn't that often the case that we see in our society around us? That there are many who like the idea of salvation in Christ. They like the idea of fire insurance, but they're really not interested in a life that denies self, denies fleshly uh, infatuation with the world, and lives for a kingdom that is yet to come. Um, Jude writes this, the whole little letter of Jude, it's only 25 verses long, it's talking about false preachers that have come to preach. Look what it says in verse 4. It says, for certain people have, what does it say, crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined, designated for this condemnation. And how, what are they? Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So these are preachers who come along who appeal to people's desires, appeal to people's sensuality. And if you read the whole little letter of Jude, it's describing all kinds of horrible things that they do, all in the name of Jesus. Friends, that is alive and well, not only in 
the first century, but it's been all through the last 20 centuries, including today. John writes of this in Revelation. Um, 1 John, the entire letter is about this. James, we studied the book of James. The entire letter describes what genuine faith is and what is not. And one of the key phrases we see in James, faith without works is dead. That means it's not saving faith. So there are some faults or incomplete markers of genuine faith. Um, These are markers that somebody might have in their life, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they have true saving faith in Jesus. Number one, the first marker um, might be this, a past event or experience. What do we mean by that? Notice on your outline there, a prayer. It's an aisle that they walk down, a raised hand, a card, a vision, a dream. There's some people that claim to have a vision or a dream of the Lord. I I remember hearing that a lot when I came back from the mission field, came back to America. I just noticed that a lot of people were talking about visions and dreams and experiences. Um, Or maybe it was a feeling or a retreat or maybe even a commitment that someone made. Friends, that does not mark off genuine faith. It might be, any one of those might be the beginning of genuine faith, but it does not, it is not by this that you would say, well, I filled out a card. Certainly God knows me. Notice here with me, Scripture does not point to a standalone conversion experience as the evidence that someone has become a Christian. It's not merely a conversion experience. You say, well, that can be very important. I would say, absolutely true. The Damascus Road of Experience that we talked about last week with uh, Saul when he becomes Paul, coming to faith in Jesus. But what do we see about that? Notice the next line there. A conversion experience must be accompanied with, fill it in, a changed life. So walking down an aisle, filling out a card, having a dream, making a commitment, raising your hand, saying a prayer is not the true indicator of genuine faith. It is a changed life, a life that God changes. How about number two? A su- another marker of an incomplete marker of genuine faith is sup- a superficially moral life. What do we mean by that? A superficially moral life. We would look at somebody and say, oh, well, that guy's such a good guy. Or that lady, man, she is so, so good. Just she, everything she does is just honest and true and right. Well, you know, she doesn't know the Lord. She doesn't claim Christ. In fact, she, she really uh, has no interest in those things. But you look at her life, certainly she is one that God would rejoice in. Well, notice this, that no one is capable of a truly moral life other than Jesus, who is God. The Bible says this over and over again. In Romans chapter 3, we see, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Isaiah 53, there is none righteous. All have turned to their own way. Um, Psalm 14, 143, each one of these reveal that there is not one who is holy and perfect in the way that they live their life. There is a superficial morality to even the best human behavior without Christ. In fact, there was a rich young ruler that said, I've kept all of the law, so what do I need to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Now, the fact that he came asking Jesus that question indicated there was something alerting him in his heart 
that something was still missing. He thought that he had kept the law perfectly, and he said, what do I need to do? And the Lord Jesus just looked at him and said, go take everything you have and sell it and give it to the poor and come follow me. And it says that the man turned away from the Lord, not to return, the man turned away from the Lord because he was a wealthy man, which shows us that even though he had kept the law in all of these things, he loved other things more than he would ever love God. You see, his false faith is revealed in the fact that he never returned to follow Christ. Um, just you can, you can read that story in Matthew chapter 19. So, Past, evident, past event of, or experience, a superficial moral life. Letter th- number three, a knowledge of the facts of salvation. Some people would say, well, I know all about that. I know that Jesus Christ came. I know that he died. I, I know that he rose again. And I know that someone can be saved if they believe upon him in that. There are some people who know all of those facts, and just like the demons, they are not saved. They are not right with God. James chapter 2, verse 19 just makes clear. They know about all these things, but they don't know God. There is a greater condemnation, in fact, for those who know all about the things of the gospel, but yet have never come to truly know God. Number four, what about a life of religious activity? You would say, well, that person's very religious. Certainly they know God, but the fact is that Jesus stood harsh, harshest against many of the religious leaders of his day. You don't see him deal with the Romans. You don't see him deal with the pagan Greeks. The people that he dealt with the most were the most religious people who were so deceived by thinking that by their religiosity and by their good works and by the way that they lived that their life, that they would be right with God. Those were the ones that Jesus confronted the most and with the harshest of terms. We need to recognize that, and we need to recognize that our own religious life might be the way that we merrily, sweetly, very devotedly go to hell. God calls us to recognize that being religious is not what He requires of us. We need to see that even letter number five, a life of service in the name of Jesus Christ is no substitute for truly knowing Christ. There are some who would say, what are you talking about? I've given my life for the sake of the gospel. I have lived and preached the gospel in this way. Judas Iscariot preached the gospel of Christ, and yet Judas denied the Lord. In Matthew chapter 7, we see that the Lord warns us that some are going to say, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? And did we not perform miracles? And the Lord will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Now this would only be uh, depressing and very discouraging if there wasn't a true way in which we can know that we know God. The Bible tells us in 1 John that these things have been written to you who believe in the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. God does not want his children to wonder about this. And so we see throughout the scripture that there are markers, there are qualities, there are characteristics of what true faith looks like, saving faith looks like, 
And that's why we're in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. We see that. I want you to see five qualities of true believers, um, five qualities of their faith, five qualities of their life that are here by God. Notice with me in verse 1 again. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Here he comes with those warnings again. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The first thing we see is that true believers rejoice in the Lord. Look what it says there in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And so he's calling them brothers, and he's saying to them, those who are really my brothers, you rejoice in God. Now, in what circumstance is this? One, he's in prison, and they're under persecution. And so he's saying to them, even in the midst of your trouble, rejoice in God. Have faith in God. Now, I have three words there on the left-hand side undeterred, unashamed, and unconfused. Undeterred, unashamed, and unconfused. That is the nature of true faith. It doesn't get deterred to something else. We don't don't leave faith in God to put faith in other things. We see that true faith is unashamed of God. True faith is, is, is with God, whether it's popular or whether it's not. And true faith comes to truly know the truth. It's not confused about these things. Um, If you want to know whether or not someone truly knows the Lord, come and look. Do they keep going off believing in other things? Are they ashamed of the gospel? Are they constantly confused by everything around them? Or do they understand, know, believe, and rejoice in the fact that they know that Christ is their only hope? So rejoicing in God says this. Now look at this first one there. Their joy doesn't come from the circumstances around them. That's why the Apostle Paul is saying rejoice in the Lord, even in your trouble. They understand that their joy does not come from circumstances. Where does it come from? It comes only from the Lord. They also recognize this, that their joy isn't an emotion. You know, happiness is an emotion. It may come, it may go, it may be dependent upon the moment. But true joy isn't an emotion. Notice this, as much as it is, as much as it is an act of the will. It's an act of faith. And so when we come before the Lord and we say rejoice in the Lord, the part of the picture is, is that we choose to trust in God. We choose to stay with God. We choose to exalt God even when we don't feel like it, and even when the circumstances are hard. This is a statement of faith in God, and that's what his children have. They have a faith that he's given to them. So even in the harshest of times, God calls us ultimately to look to him. Notice the last one there. Their joy is in the truth that they know. We've often said this in the life of the church. Truth in the mind brings hope to the heart. And that is what true believers have. They have truth in the mind, and that truth is what informs their heart on how to feel and how to respond. So true believers rejoice in the Lord. Let's look at number two. True believers exercise discernment of what is true. They don't just believe anything that comes along. If you're a true believer, you're going to weigh about the messages that you're hearing. 
False teachers must be avoided. That's the message that Paul is saying here. When he, I mean, again, this, this word is sharp. It's cutting. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. He talks about them mutilating the flesh. What does that mean? We'll look at that in just a second. But, but notice this. He's saying there are false teachers that come along. And those false teachers, here's what they're promoting. They are promoting works-based salvation, which is Satan's oldest lie in the universe, that you can earn your salvation. And these people would come in behind Paul, they would come in behind other teachers, and they would be convincing the people, well, you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to do this, and then you'll be right with God. And that is absolutely false. If that was true, Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die. And so what we see is, is that Jesus comes, he lays down his life for us, and he says, you just trust in what I did, and my grace upon you by doing that, don't trust in what you're going to do. And so you see, that is such an abhorrent thing to, to trade your works for Christ's work of humiliation and death on the cross, that these are called evil doers. These are called dogs. And notice that it says, we are the circumcision. Those are actually those with a changed heart. He's saying, Old Testament believers, they were characterized by this sign of God um, coming and changing their lives, setting them apart to be a different people. And, and we see that he's saying now under the new covenant, it, it's not merely about male circumcision, but it's about the issue of the heart. And I've, I've laid out several verses there from Jeremiah, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and then especially in Romans chapter 2 that we see it's not about the religious act of circumcision. It is all about having a changed heart the Holy Spirit coming and changing us. And in fact, number three has to do with that. Notice number three, true believers worship in the Spirit. We see that in verse three. Look what it says. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. That worship by the Spirit of God. True Christians have Spirit-driven worship. It's not something that you're trying to conjure up. It's not something that you're trying to do. It's not, it's not a feeling that you're seeking. It's not an act or, or something else that you're trying to manufacture. True believers have God living within them, bringing within them, working within them the worship of his great glory. This is God's work in their heart. You see that in, first, or you see that in John chapter 4. Jesus is dealing with the Samaritan woman, and he says, those who worship me, worship me in spirit and in truth. Notice, true Christians worship God from the heart in obedience to his word. So it's not merely a song that we sing. It's not merely a feeling that we pursue. It's far more than that, and it's in the obedience of our lives. In fact, the third one there, I want you to see there, true Christians worship God in the way that they live their lives. It's not merely an experience or a song. It is far more. It's what we do when we wake up in the morning, and it's what we do all day until we go to bed at night again. It is the issue of us living for God. There's another characteristic that we see in this passage, and we see it in verse 3. Number 4 is this, true believers glory in Christ Jesus. That's exactly what they do. That's exactly what it says. They glory in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? The Greek word for that, to glory, is this. 
it's boasting with joy and it's boasting in pride. 35 times the Apostle Paul uses that word. 35 times the Apostle Paul talks about glorying in Christ, exalting Christ, boasting in Christ. You see, it's not about what it's not about me and what I've done. It's not about me and what anybody else has done. It's all about what Christ has done. You see, true Christians, fill this in, give all the credit to Jesus all the time. That's what they do. Uh, True Christians are going to recognize that anything that's good in their life is coming from God. Anything good that that they even do is coming from God. It's it's all about him and what he's done. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, It's by the grace of God that we live and we move. We have our being in all that we do. It's by the grace of God that we are saved. It is his glory that we are living in and living for. And so... In the life of our church, we've recognized, that the, we've, we've recognized the reformational truths of sola gratia, sola fide, and solus Christus. What do those things mean? It is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by anything else. That's what the reformers were trying to reclaim. They were trying to say that Christianity had a false gospel of saying it's all about what you do. It's all about what another individual does besides Christ. It, it, it's, it's all based upon works. It's based upon what you give with your money. It's based upon how many times you pray this. It's based upon how many times you do this relig- religious act. And the reformers said, no, no, that's not true. The Bible says it is God's unmerited favor, and that unmerited favor comes through faith in Jesus Christ, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the only hope that you can be saved from your sin. So true believers glory in Christ Jesus. Number five, I want you to see number five, and this is what we close with. True believers put no confidence in the flesh. And that's what you see in verse 3. Notice what it says. For we are the circumstances, that, the circumcision, that's the people with a true changed heart, who worship God or, or who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And look, look what it says at the end. And put no confidence in the flesh. That is a sign of a true believer. A true believer says, it is not by anything that I'm going to do that I am going to be saved. It is solely by the finished work of Christ on the cross by which I am saved. I can claim no credit for my salvation. It's all him. It's him, it's him, it's him. If I am saved, it's because of him. You see, some boast according to the flesh. We see that all through the scripture. Notice it in 2 Corinthians 11. But true Christians understand that it's all God and none of us. We can't take any credit for anything that would bring to us salvation. Look at John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life, underline it, and the flesh is what? No help at all. Notice Romans chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That, that, that I, there's just nothing in me that comes from who I am in a fallen creation that is good for God. God comes by his grace, saves me, works through me, and makes me of ultimate value because he has made me his. Look at Romans 8, chapter 3 through 5. 
for what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the flesh. Circle those words. God did. God did it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man as an offering for sin. He thus condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous standard of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not live according to the flesh, but look how Christians live. Christians are to live according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. This is a true marker of a true Christian, is that they recognize God is the one who has done it. It is not me. I give glory to God. I glory in Christ. I rejoice in His Spirit. I live upon Him. Notice these two statements at the bottom. False repentance involves sorrow only over harmful, circumstances, harmful consequences. Um, it is a common thing for somebody to say, oh, well, I, I don't want the consequence of my sin, so I want to turn away merely for the consequence. But if that's, if that's all it is, if all it is is a picture of self-preservation, my friend, the gospel is more than that. It ultimately must be manifested as more than that. Notice this. True repentance involves sorrow over the evil, sinful, over the evil of sinful deeds against a holy God. That's God's work that he comes and he brings to us a repentance that recognizes it's not just that I don't want the consequences of this, it's that I've sinned against a holy God. And by his grace, Romans says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, that he comes and leads us to this. Salvation is of God. Notice the next statement that is there. False repentance concerns it, itself merely with conduct and feelings. False repentance merely is looking at conduct and feelings. It's not. Look at this. True repentance recognizes the bankruptcy of the heart's inner condition before God. And so there's a big difference. Is this, is this really just about my behavior and my feelings, how I feel? Or is this really recognizing that I am bankrupt before God and I am in total need of Him? I am 100% needy before God, that he is going to change my inner condition. I cannot change my heart, only he can change my heart. You see, Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 says that we are to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If today, as you think about this message, you're wondering about, you know, where am I with God and how do I really come in repentance before him? There are some wonderful guides to that in Psalm chapter 32 and Psalm 51. In both of those passages, you see God showing us what true repentance looks like. And he does that through people. He's working in their hearts. He is leading them to a true brokenness over who they are without him. And they're, leading, they're being led to a true brokenness of their need for him. And so I want to encourage you to go and spend time with that. I love the little verse of Acts 3.19 when the apostle Peter stood up and he preached. And he said, repent therefore in return that your sins may be wiped away and times of refreshing may come from the presence of God. You see, true believers come and recognize 
that I can rejoice in God in every circumstance because my life depends upon Him. They have... They exercise discernment about what's true and what's not true, and it's all because of His Word and His Spirit in us. They worship in spirit. They glory in Christ. And they put no confidence in themselves, and they put it all in Christ. Friends, this is the way to true freedom. This is the way to a freedom that leads you out of the darkest hour, the dark night of the soul, the frustration of of total defeat within finds victory and in Christ, in Christ alone. Today I want to invite you to turn to Christ and to rest in Him alone. That's what Philippians is warning us to do. Philippians is saying, don't listen to false teachers. Don't listen to false gospels. You rejoice in Christ and you rejoice in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, this morning, there are some who are recognizing that they need you and you alone and not the things of the world. Lord, that they cannot add to what you have done. That this word makes so clear that, Lord, you are the one who brings salvation. Lord, I pray that you would knock out our earthly treasures as any hope. Lord, the earthly works that we would do, that we would not put faith in any of those, but that we would see that you came and did what only you could do, that you would lay down your life, the perfect sacrifice for the greatest of sinners. Lord, I pray that this morning that we would be rejoicing in your kind of love that would do that. I pray that we would rejoice in the truth that sets us free. In the glorious name of Christ, amen. I hope and pray that you will take this word and that you will um, allow God's words to wash over you, um, that you'll talk about this with your family, that you'll talk about what false faith really looks like, what true faith really looks like, what the messages that we hear around us, or even the way that people think in our society, what they tend to say about salvation. I want to encourage you to look to Christ, talk about it, handle these truths a little bit, and ask for God's grace and help in causing you to apply this to your life.